Hello, and welcome to Musings on History. Episode 5.8, The Protestant Reformation. Hello, and welcome back to Musings on History. I'm your host, Dana, and this is the eighth episode in the series on the history of Christianity. Last episode, I discussed the early church reformers and the impacts of the Renaissance on politics, art, religion, and learning. This episode, Who Don't Hear Must Feel, and the Catholic Church learns what happens when you ignore the calls coming from inside the house. Chapter 1, The Mad Monk, Martin Luther and His 95 Theses. In most classrooms around the world, when students learn about the Protestant Reformation, they learn that the German monk Martin Luther, and yes, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Sr. are named for him, but Martin Luther got super pissed off one day and nailed his 95 theses to the door of a church and set off the Protestant Reformation. The the historical accuracy of that is questionable, and this telling doesn't fully capture the decades of pushback the church had been getting for some of its more egregious practices, such as simony and the sale of indulgences, as well as the behavior of church leaders, which had been looking more and more like the behavior of the secular rulers. Martin Luther was born in the county of Mansfield, Holy Roman Empire, in present-day Saxony, Anhalt. He was a friar in the Order of St. Augustine, one of the three mendicant orders, along with the Franciscans and Dominicans. In the Catholic Church, there are four branches of religious orders. The monastic orders of monks or nuns who live and work in a monastery and recite the divine office. The mendicant orders of friars and nuns who live from alms, recite the divine office and have active participation in apostolic endeavors. The canons regular order is founded by canons and canonesses is regular who recite the divine office and generally are in charge of a parish and the clerks regular that were founded by priests who are also religious men with vows and have a very active apostolic life. There's also regular clergy meaning like deacons and priests who are not part of a religious order. The monastic orders were the first, originally modeling themselves on the patristic age hermits and ascetics of the first and second centuries. These were the Benedictines, Cistercians, Carthusians, Basilians, Pauline Fathers, and the Trappists, who are the most strict of these uh, mendicant orders. The monastic orders initially lived in poverty and communally, but from the 12th century on, economic and social changes in Western Europe saw a renewal in commerce and new urban centers with a new urban middle class. There was a new attraction to monastic living that not only attracted individuals aspiring to become monks and nuns, but also those who desired to hold property and buildings as well, even if communally. The idea that Christ was poor during his time on earth came to be viewed as anachronistic, and how convenient is that? And many monasteries became very wealthy, viewing that as a sign of God's favor. Another justification for the wealth of the monasteries was that they helped the Catholic Church fund the Crusades. But of course, this justification faded once the Holy Lands were deemed lost. Nonetheless, Gnostics like the Albigensians became popular as new directions in spirituality were called for. And church reform became a major theme of the cultural revival of this era. After meeting with the Albigensians in Toulouse, 
St. Dominic founded the Order of Preachers, commonly known as the Dominican Order, in 1216. And St. Francis of Assisi founded the Order of Friars Minor, the Order of St. Clair, and the Order of St. Francis in 1209, which are umbrellaed under the Franciscan Order. Soon followed the Augustinians, Trinitarians, Carmelites, Mercedarians, Servites, and the Brothers of Penance. The mendicant orders differed from the monastic orders in that the mendicants adopted a lifestyle of poverty, traveling, and living in urban areas for the purposes of preaching, evangelizing, and ministry, especially to the poor. The Augustinian friars in particular have the reputation for valuing learning and science and venerate uh, the aspect of the Virgin Mary as Our Lady of Good Counsel who gives sage advice to those who seek it and her. The Augustinians also established their own printing press in their convent at Nuremberg in 1479. Martin Luther was initially enrolled at the Universität Erfurt in Thuringia in 1501 at age 17. His father had always wanted him to study law, but he hated it, and he switched to theology and philosophy. He was deeply influenced by his earliest tutor, the Augustinian friar Bartholomeus Arnaldi von Usingen, who taught him to be suspicious of even the greatest thinkers and to test everything himself through experience. Luther soon developed a love-hate relationship with philosophy, having initially expressed a particular interest in Aristotle, William of Ockham, and Gabriel Beale. Luther wanted to know more about how to love God and felt that reason could not lead men to God. Luther felt that reason could be used to question men and institutions, but not God, and that divine, and that human beings could learn about God only through divine revelation. For this reason, scripture became very important to him, and he felt that all Christian doctrine should have a solid basis in scripture first and foremost. On 2 July 1505, while Luther was returning to the University at Erfurt after a trip home, a lightning bolt struck and nearly killed him, which terrified him. Later, while in confession, Luther told his confessor that he was terrified of divine judgment because he knew in his heart that he was full of sin and would go to hell. And he cried out, help, St. Anna, I will become a monk. He viewed this cry for help as a vow that he couldn't break, and so he left university, sold his books, and entered St. Augustine's Monastery in Erfurt on 17 July 1505. Luther was saddened by the move and leaving school and all that, but he ultimately resolved to keep his vow. After his farewell supper, his friends walked him to the door of the Black Cloister, that's uh, the Wittenberg Cathedral, and... Luther turned to them and said, this day you see me and then not ever again. He was like up the street. Luther was very dramatic. Luther and his father became estranged after he joined the monastery because he saw the priesthood as a waste of Luther's costly education. Although he was miserable initially, Luther dedicated himself to the Augustinian order, devoting himself to fasting, long hours in prayer, pilgrimage, and frequent confession, so much so that the confessors asked him to limit his time in confession to twice a month. Luther described this period of his life as one of deep spiritual despair, writing, I lost touch with Christ the Savior and Comforter and made him the jailer and hangman of my poor soul. Johann von Stoppitz, Luther's superior and confessor, pointed Luther's mind away from continual reflection upon his own sins and towards the merits of Christ. He taught Luther that true repentance does not involve self-inflicted penances and punishments, but rather a change of heart and then behavior. 
On 3 April 1507, Martin Luther was ordained in Erfurt Cathedral by the Bishop of Brandenburg, Hieronymus Scultius, or Jerome Schultz, if you prefer the Teutonic version. When Schultz became the first dean of the newly founded University at Wittenberg in 1508, he asked Martin Luther to join him and teach theology there. Martin Luther continued to devote himself to his studies, even while teaching, receiving a bachelor's degree in biblical studies on 9 March 1508 and another bachelor's degree in 1509 for his interpretations of the sentences by Peter Lombard. On 19 October 1512, he was awarded his Doctor of Theology, and on 21 October 1512, he was he was received into the Senate of the Theological Faculty of Universität Wittenberg, having succeeded von Stoppitz as Chair of Theology. He remained the Chair of Theology until his excommunication in 1521. In 1506, Pope Julius took up the cause of rebuilding St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, which was the original from the days of Constantine. The old basilica had been through numerous sackings, fires, and riots, and the structure, along with many others in Rome, was crumbling. When Julius's successor, Pope Leo X, became pope in March 1513, he continued and expanded upon the designs that Pope Julius II and his architect, Donato Bramante, had come up with, and started a campaign of indulgences to pay for the construction. Johann Tetzel, a Dominican friar, was sent to Germany in 1516 by Albrecht von Brandenburg, the Archbishop of Mainz. Von Brandenburg was deeply in debt as a result of him sponsoring too many benefices, and so he had to contribute a considerable sum to the rebuilding efforts. He obtained permission from Pope Leo X to conduct a sale of plenary indulgence, a special plenary indulgence, i.e. remission of the temporal punishment of sin, and he could keep half of the proceeds to pay the fees for his benefices. Martin Luther was scandalized by this, and on 31 October 1517, he wrote to his bishop protesting against the sale of the indulgences. He enclosed a copy of his treatise called Disputation on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences, which came to be known as the 95 Theses. Hans Hillebrand, professor and chair of the Department of Religion at Duke University in North Carolina, wrote that Luther, still a devout Catholic at this time, saw his disputation as a scholarly objection to church practices with precedent, and the tone of the writing is accordingly searching rather than doctrinaire, which is a fancy way of saying that Luther did not mean to condemn his bishop. Hillebrand does say, though, that there is a challenging tone in some of these theses, particularly those that pertain to the Pope. One in particular, Thesis 86, says... Why does the Pope, whose wealth today is greater than the wealth of the richest crasses, build the Basilica of St. Peter with the money of poor believers rather than his own money? If Martin Luther was alive today, he would probably ask that same question of Jerry Jones. If you'll recall from the previous episode, Pope Leo X was born Giovanni di Lorenzo de' Medici of the famed Medici banking family. He was the son of Lorenzo de' Medici, called Lorenzo the Magnificent during his lifetime, and Clarice Orsini of the powerful Orsini family of Rome. He was related to Pope Innocent VIII, who was from an aristocratic family in the kingdom of Naples, and Lorenzo had paid Pope Innocent VIII to make Giovanni a cardinal deacon of Santa Maria in, in Dominica when he was only 13. Pope Leo X was the last pope to have never been part of a priestly order prior to his elevation to the papal throne. So to people like Martin Luther, Pope Leo X was emblematic of everything that was wrong with the Catholic Church. 
With all his money and connections, Pope Leo could have called on his relatives to rebuild the Basilica without sponsoring a single indulgence. But rich people don't become rich or stay rich by spending their own money. They become rich by exploiting others. And that is what Martin Luther saw his actions as, exploiting the piety of the poor in order to build himself another grand palace with hand-painted Raphael originals that the poor Christians of Europe would never even get to see. And that's true because there were already papal apartments that Pope Julius had had painted by Raphael. But then when Leo X became Pope, he added like a whole nother set of apartments because he didn't think the ones that Julius had built were big enough. And then he had Michelangelo, I believe, paint those. And Michelangelo was not cheap in his lifetime either. Johann Tetzel was a good salesman, and he's often attributed as saying, as soon as the, a coin in the coffers rings, a soul from purgatory also springs, which is basically saying that plenary indulgences could buy one's way into heaven or their loved ones who were in purgatory. Martin Luther found this reprehensible and not in line with the scriptures, which don't mention purgatory at all. And he predicted, or sorry, preach, that since forgiveness was God's alone to grant, those who claimed that indulgences absolved buyers from all punishments and granted them salvation were in error. Let me clear that up. So purgatory. The concept of purgatory comes from a mistranslation. The Bible, the the, the uh books, the divinely inspired books and gospels that would eventually make up the Bible had to be translated from either Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic or whichever language that they were originally written in and translated into Latin or into Coptic or into Guise or what have you. And in that time when it was being translated, the Jewish concept of Sheol became purgatory. But again, it's not like a thing in Christianity outside of Catholicism. Martin Luther preached that since forgiveness was God's alone to grant, those who claimed that indulgences absolved buyers from all punishments and granted them salvation were in error. Christians, he said, must not slacken in following Christ on account of such false assurances. It is commonly thought that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the doors of the Universität Wittenberg on 31 October 1517, but many historians now contest this because it's based on the word of Luther's collaborator, Philip Melanthicon, who wasn't even in Wittenberg when this supposedly happened. Luther's 95 theses were soon being printed in Latin in Wittenberg and Nuremberg, Germany. However, they got out. And by January 1518, Luther's friends had translated the 95 Theses from Latin into German, which facilitated its spread all over the country. By 1519, Luther's writings had reached France, England, Italy, and Denmark, and the demand was sky high for more of his writings. He then published a short commentary on Galatians and uh, a work he called Work on the Psalms. Three of his best-known works were published in 1520, To the Christian Nobility of the German Nation, On the Babylonian Captivity of the Church, and On the Freedom of a Christian. Pope Leo X, perhaps bogged down with other things, was slow to respond to Luther's criticisms, and only in February 1518 did he direct the vicar general of the Augustinians to impose silence on his monks, 
which the vicar general was only too happy to ignore since Martin Luther's reformist zeal was bringing in donations from all over Europe. For a decade, beginning in 1510, Luther had lectured on the Psalms and on the books of Hebrews, Romans, and Galatians. And as he studied these portions of the Bible, he came to view the use of terms such as penance and righteousness in a different way. He became convinced that the church was corrupt and had lost sight of what the central truths of Christianity were, the most important for Luther being the doctrine of justification by faith alone through God's grace. Justification is God's act of declaring a sinner to be righteous, and Luther believed that this was only attainable through the profession of faith that Jesus was the Messiah. He wrote, this one and firm rock, which we call the doctrine of justification, is the chief article of the whole Christian doctrine, which comprehends the understanding of all godliness. In 1525, Luther published On the Bondage of the Will, which he wrote as a response to Erasmus's on free will that had been published a year prior. Erasmus had argued that the Bible can be obscure, ambiguous, and seemingly contradictory on the question of free will, but that on the whole, the Bible and church tradition favor free will. And he did explain in On Free Will, because I read it, he did explain that the reason for this, uh, the obscurity and the ambiguity and the contradictory nature of the Bible was all the translations that it had to go through. Uh, Luther conversely felt that the nature of each individual was largely predetermined in the mind and plan of God and that the church was only a teacher or guide, not the true molder of a man's nature, which is the concept of predestination. Luther based his position on St. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, uh, chapter two, verses eight through 10, where it says, for by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, I've already gone on my anti-Pauline rant in episodes 5.2 and 5.3, but I just think it's funny that Luther and the Catholic Church were doing all this back and forth about whose ideas were more aligned with Christ's teachings. Christ's teachings. Yet, most of what they used to back up their assertions was based on things Christ never said, and that were said by a man who never met Christ, lived a hundred years after Christ, was initially a persecutor of Christians, had a internalized self-hatred of his Jewishness, and was just like, all in all, like his followers were super fanatical and they used to beat people who didn't, you know, agree with Pauline teachings. Paul was a plant. I already, I already went on this rant. I'm not even, I'm not even going to do this. I'm not even going to do this. But Occam's razor does state that the simplest explanation is usually the right one. And the simplest explanation for all this that I can come up with is that the self-styled apostle named Paul, because he called himself an apostle, like he just woke up one day and decided, you know what? I know more about Jesus than the people who fucking walked with him. But yeah, Paul was a plant whose job it was to bring the new rebellious Christian religion under the thumb of the Roman state. Fast forward to the 14th century and what do you know? It worked. Now, contrary to the teaching of his day, that the righteous acts of believers are performed in cooperation with God. Luther wrote that Christians receive righteousness entirely from God and that righteousness not only comes from Christ, but actually is the righteousness of Christ imputed to Christians rather than infused into them through faith. Yeah, that 
so what? Anyway, Luther writes, that is why faith alone makes someone just and fulfills the law. Faith is that which brings the Holy Spirit through the merits of Christ. So then, and I'm pretty sure I'm not the first person to ask this question. Someone professes faith in Christ, blah, 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 blah. But they are also like a axe murderer. I mean, like works matter, right? Because your works should reflect your justification and the Holy Spirit and all that stuff that's supposed to make you this new creature or whatever. But anyway, faith for Luther was a gift from God and the experience of being justified by faith was as though I had been born again, which is where you get the concept of being a born again Christian. Man obtained entry into paradise through the discovery of the righteousness of God, a discovery that the just person of whom Romans 1.17 speaks of lives by faith. He explains his concept of justification in the small called articles. The first and chief article is this. Jesus Christ, our Lord and God, died for our sins and was raised again for our justification based on Romans 3, 24 and 25. He alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Got that from John 1, 29. And God has laid hand on God has laid on him the iniquity of us all coming from Isaiah 53, 6. All have sinned and are justified freely without their own works and merits by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus in his blood. Romans 3, 23, 25. It is necessary that this is necessary to believe. This cannot be otherwise acquired or grasped by any work, law or merit. Therefore, it is clear and certain that this faith alone justifies us. Nothing of this article can be yielded or surrendered even though heaven and earth and everything else falls, Mark 13, 31. So are you like in a constant state of rebirth because you continue to sin and fall short of the glory of God after being justified his faith? So it's just like you're just constantly being justified, like God doesn't get anything else done. That's why famines and genocides and everything else keep happening because he's too busy just recertifying your justification and your grace over and over and over and over again. Jesus Christ, just do something good to like show that you are actually living a Christ-like life. I'm siding with the Catholics on this one. Pope Leo X, who had entered the church as a means of helping his family maintain power in Europe. Now I feel bad for siding with the Catholics. He didn't know what to do with the friar from Wittenberg who always cited his sources directly from the Bible. On 24 May 1518, Luther sent an explanation of his theses to the Pope, and by 7 August, he was summoned to appear at Rome. I bet Pope Leo was like, yeah, I'm not going to read all that. Instead of the chronically ill Luther traveling all the way to Rome, his symptoms lead historians to believe he had Crohn's disease, ew, an arrangement was made for his summons to be canceled and for Luther to voluntarily meet a papal legate in Augsburg in October 1518. You know, I wonder if a papal legate in like the history of Christendom ever actually managed to do their job. Cause in every story that I've read and like every historical account that I've looked at, the answer is no. And it's no here too. The legate Cardinal Cahetan. Okay. Questioned Martin Luther for three days, mostly over the Pope's right to issue indulgences. And it eventually turned into a shouting match where Martin Luther, who had always been fond of cursing and lewd speech, mocked Cahetan and even implied that he and the Pope were lovers. 
Whoa. This made things personal between Luther and the Pope. And theologians from all over Europe sprang to the Pope's defense. Everyone wanted to be the guy who took down Martin Luther. For his part, Luther realized he couldn't take on the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor at the same time. So in January 1519 at Altenburg in Saxony, Luther made certain concessions to the papal nuncio, Karl von Militz, who was a relative of the emperor, and promised to remain silent if his opponents did. Luther be having all that smoke until you have a gun. But his opponents, most notably the theologian Johann Eck, wanted to take Luther down publicly. And so in June and July of 1519, he staged a debate with Luther's colleague Andreas Karlstadt in Leipzig and invited Luther to speak there as well. In the Leipzig debate, Luther made the assertion that Matthew 16, 18 does not give the Pope exclusive right to interpret scripture and that neither popes nor church councils were infallible. I thought infallibility was like God's thing. Eck then branded Luther a new Yan Hus and devoted himself to bringing about Luther's downfall. That reminds me of that line from Harry Potter, like you will mark him as your enemy. And, you know, it could have been Harry or it could have been uh, Neville Longbottom. But since what's his name, Voldemort decided that it was going to be Harry, he kind of like made his bed. Why would you have branded him Luther a new Jan Hus? Jan Hus whooped y'all's asses. Anyway, Pope Leo issued a papal bull on 9 November 1519 that's a that is like honestly one of the most ominous days of the year in the day after I was born. <laughs> and it required all Christians to believe in the Pope's power to grant indulgences. But this, of course, did not move Luther to retract his theses. Luther and the papacy spent a year in fruitless negotiations, during which time Luther's writings continued to spread across Europe and were translated into more languages. Perhaps not realizing that Luther no longer viewed the papacy as an authority over him, Pope Leo issued another papal bull on 15 June 1520 called the Exerge Domine or Arise, O Lord. And he condemned 41 propositions extracted from Luther's 95 theses that Luther must retract or be excommunicated for. And he sent Johann Eck to Germany to present the bull to Martin Luther and disseminate it throughout Germany. In this bull, the Pope also directed Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, to take energetic measures against heresy. Luther's response was to publicly set fire to the bull and decretals, which are the letters of a pope that formulate decisions in ecclesiastical law of the Catholic Church. And he did this right in front of uh, Wittenberg Cathedral on 10 December 1520. He defended this decision in his Why the Pope and his recent book are burned and assertions concerning all articles. After this, Luther was excommunicated by Pope Leo X on 3 January 1521 in the bull Desit Romanum Pontificum. To this day, although the Lutheran World Federation, the Methodist denomination, and the Catholic Church's Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity agreed in 1999 and 2006 on a common understanding of justification by God's grace through faith in Christ, so the church essentially bowed to Luther, Mm -hmm. the Catholic Church has denied the Lutheran World Federation's request to lift Martin Luther's 1521 excommunication. First of all, why would they do that? And second, why would the Lutherans be asking for that? Anyway, after excommunication, Luther had to deal with the secular authorities who banned the 95 theses from being read, printed, or disseminated within the Holy Roman Empire. 
On 18 April 1521, Luther appeared as ordered before the Diet of Worms, which was a general assembly of the estates of the Holy Roman Emperor. Empire, rather. It met from 28 January to 15, oh, sorry, 25 May 1521, with Emperor Charles V presiding and Prince Frederick III, Elector of Saxony, obtaining safe conduct for Luther to travel to and from the Diet. Johann Eck, speaking on behalf of the uh, empire, laid out Luther's works in front of him and asked him if the books were his and whether he stood by their contents. Luther confirmed that the works were his, but asked for time to pray and deliberate on whether or not he stood by the contents. He prayed and the next day gave his response. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves, I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me. Amen. And then he made this symbol that like, the Teutonic order and the Knights in Germany used to do signaling like I have stated my case and I've won. And that later turned into the, um, the, uh, Herr Hitler symbol. So that's fun. Johann Eck informed Luther that he was acting like a heretic saying, Martin, there is no one of the her- there was no one of the heresies which have torn from the bosom of the church, which has not derived its origin from the various interpretations of the scripture. And he had a point there. Like they used to tell me in church, nobody knows the scripture better than the devil. Which I mean, pff, true. The Bible itself is the arsenal which each innovator has drawn his deceptive arguments. It was with biblical texts that Pelagius and Arius maintained their doctrines. Yeah, but on the flip side, Arius actually used the Bible to justify his doctrine. The other dude wasn't Athanasius. He just made some shit up. He just made some shit up. And then y'all let a pagan decide on it. Anyway, Arius, for instance, found the negation of the eternity of the word, an eternity which you admit in this verse of the New Testament, Joseph knew not his wife till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he said in the same way that you say that this passage enchained him. When the fathers of the Council of Constance condemned this proposition of Jan Hus, the church of Jesus Christ is the only community of the elect. They condemned an error for the church, like a good mother, embraces within her arms all who bear the name of Christian, all who are called to enjoy the celestial beatitude. Luther still refused to recant. And the Edict of Worms was presented to the Diet on 25 May 1521, declaring Luther an outlaw, banning his literature, and requiring his arrest. It also made it illegal for anyone in the Holy Roman Empire to give him food or shelter, made it legal to kill Luther without con- and made it legal to kill Luther, yeah, without consequence. Knowing that an attempt on Luther's life would be made as he traveled back to Wittenberg, Frederick III had him intercepted on his way home in the forest near Wittenberg by masked horsemen impersonating highway robbers. They escorted Luther to the security of Wartburg Schloss in Eisenach, where Luther would remain for a year before returning to Wittenberg. During his stay at Wartburg, Luther translated the New Testament from Greek into German and poured out doctrinal and polemical writings against the Pope and other Catholic Church figures. These included a renewed attack on Archbishop Albrecht of Mainz, 
whom he shamed into halting the sale of indulgences in his episcopate, and a refutation of the argument of Latimus, in which he expounded upon the principle of justification to Jacobus Latimus, an Orthodox theologian from Louvain. In this work, he argued that every good work designed to attract God's favor is a sin. Huh? Okay. All humans are sinners by nature, he explained. And God's grace, which cannot be earned, alone can make them just. So yeah, he was very serious about this justification by faith thing. Like he spent years on this. Okay, Martin, we get it. In the summer of 1521, Martin widened his target from individual pieties like indulgences and pilgrimages to core doctrines of the Catholic Church. In On the Abrogation of the Private Mass, he stated that Mass is a gift to be received by the entire congregation, not a sacrifice, and to consider it as such was idolatry. In his essay on confession, whether the Pope has the power to require it, he rejected compulsory confession and encouraged private confession and absolution since every Christian is a confessor. In November 1521, Luther wrote The Judgment of Martin Luther on Monastic Vows, where he renounced his Augustinian vows and assured monks and nuns that they could break their vows without sin because vows were a legitimate and vain attempt to win salvation. Luther secretly returned to Wittenberg on 6 March 1522 after the overzealous reforms of his friend Andreas Karlstadt, supported by the ex-Augustinian Gabriel Zwilling, caused unrest in the city. To rein everybody in, he preached for eight days during Lent, beginning with the Invocabit Sunday, leading to the sermons being named the Invocabit Sermons. The, in these sermons, he hammered home the importance of core Christian values such as love and patience and charity and freedom and reminded the citizens to trust God's word rather than violence to bring about necessary changes. The sermons did what they were intended to do, which was to dampen the zealous fervor of his followers. And then Luther set about reversing or modifying the new church practices, which established him as a moderate who both the radicals and the conservatives hated. Luther was sympathetic to the plight of the peasants who revolted in Thuringia, Swabia, and Franconia, but he was unwilling to publicly support their cause. Martin Luther married the former nun Katharina von Bora on 13 June 1525 when she was 26 and he was 41, and they had six children. Luther spent the rest of his life organizing his new church, establishing a supervisory church body, laying down a new form of worship service, and writing a clear summary of the new faith in the form of two catechisms. He chose not to try and impose his organization on anyone outside of the electorate of Saxony, acting only as an advisor in other areas. And in response to calls for a German liturgy, Luther wrote a German mass in 1526. Luther based his order on the Catholic service, but omitted everything that smacks of sacrifice. And the mass became a celebration where everyone received the wine as well as the bread. He retained the elevation of the host and chalice, while making trappings such as mass vestments, altars, and candles optional, which allow for freedom of ceremony. To some reformers, like the followers of Huldrych Zwingli of Switzerland, these changes were still too papist. And Luther's response to that was, okay, well then do things the way you want to do them in Switzerland, bitch. I'm in Germany, Saxony to be specific. Why y'all up in my business? Like he really responded to Huldrych Zwingli, like rude as hell. It was funny. However, Luther's service included congregational singing of hymns and psalms in German, as well as parts of the liturgy, including Luther's unison setting of the creed. 
To reach the simple people and the young, Luther incorporated religious instruction into the weekday services in the form of the second catechism, and he provided simplified versions of the baptism and of the marriage services. Luther and his colleagues introduced the new order of worship during their visitation of the electorate of Saxony, which began in 1527. They also assessed the standard of pastoral care and Christian education in the territory and found it sorely lacking. Merciful God, what misery I have seen, Luther writes. The common people knowing nothing at all of Christian doctrine. And unfortunately, many pastors are well nigh unskilled and incapable of teaching. Well, I mean, damn, you had only been excommunicated like six years prior. You still own justification by faith. How are they supposed to know? This was to be a common problem, though, during the early years of the Reformation in many countries, where the new preachers were often younger and unsure of themselves during weekly sermons. Also, you guys are literally just like cobbling together your, I don't know, your liturgy, your doctrine, and most of it is just like, well, this is what the Catholics think, so this is what we don't think, which I suppose is why they're called Protestants. But how did you really expect them to just like, have this whole thing down. Any idiot can say the mass. It's been the same since 1962, but expecting me to be like an ace on justification by faith alone when you just finished writing about it, like give me a break. But yeah, they were often bored and turned off by the dry preaching in the Protestant churches because they were used to the ceremony and tradition of the Catholic mass. And I feel you on that. Protestant churches are so dry Uh, and they take forever. Luther's large and small catechisms were designed to impart the basics of Christianity to the congregation and provide a template for the preachers. They provided an easy to understand instructional and devotional material of the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, Baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Luther had published his German translation of the New Testament in 1522, and he and his collaborators completed the translation of the Old Testament in 1534, when the entire Bible was then published. He worked on refining his translations until his death. Luther lived until the age of 62 when he died of an apoplectic stroke. From 1521, which is when he was branded an outlaw at the Diet of Worms, until 15 February 1546, when he gave his last sermon in his hometown of Eisleben, Martin Luther worked tirelessly, tirelessly to define and redefine what will become Lutheran doctrine, weathering many controversies and crises of faith along the way. Chapter 2, The Protestant Reformation of the British Isles The Protestant Reformation began in Germany with Martin Luther, and Lutheranism did take on a distinctly German characteristic. But Protestantism continued to spread quickly throughout Western Europe, developing a local flavor wherever it took root. In England, the Protestant Reformation was tied to English national identity and the supremacy of the English crown. So it was like a top-down reformation rather than a grassroots one. The first phase of the English Reformation is called the Tudor phase, and it encompasses the reigns of Henry VIII, his son Edward VI, and his two daughters Mary and Elizabeth I. Henry VIII was moved to break with the Pope in Rome for political and romantic reasons rather than his personal beliefs. He was under pressure to produce a legitimate male heir to the throne, even though there was nothing in English law saying that it had to be a man. And like most people loved little Mary and Catherine and they just couldn't wait for Mary to be queen. Uh, but his first wife, Catherine of Aragon had only produced his daughter, Mary. He fell in love with a courtier named Anne Boleyn, the mother of his second daughter, the future Elizabeth I and defied the Catholic church's ban on divorce without papal dispensation to marry her leading to the split between the Catholic church and the church of England. 
Anne Boleyn's family had Protestant leanings, and Anne famously gave Henry VIII, William Tyndale's The Obedience of the Christian Man. Tyndale was a contemporary of Martin Luther, who was inspired by John Wycliffe to translate the Bible into English. This had been made illegal after Wycliffe's death in 1384, and Tyndale eventually saw exile in Germany, but he was burned at the stake in Belgium on 6 October 1536. Tyndale emphasized the importance of the scripture over any other authority, such as the Catholic Church and the Pope. He also emphasized the authority of the king, stating it was God who appointed kings and that the king was the sole authority of his realm. Naturally, the idea that Henry had authority over the Pope or that the Pope had no authority over him was extremely relevant to Henry, which is probably why Anne gave him the banned book. Henry VIII appointed himself supreme head of the Church of England, dissolving the convents and monasteries and seizing their wealth. And for this, he was excommunicated in December 1538. So what's going to happen? Because the Anglicans are like super against divorce. Like they look down on it or whatever, even though the whole crooks of Anglicanism is the king at the time wanted a divorce. So what are they going to do when Charles becomes king? If Charles becomes king, whatever. That's interesting. Despite breaking with Rome, Henry remained very conservative in the scope of reforms that he allowed in his new Anglican church. He didn't support Tyndale's translating the Bible into English, nor did he support Luther's justification by faith alone. The only reformer actually to survive Henry VIII's reign was his Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cranmer, who was hamstrung by the conservatives during Henry's reign, but who was able to implement more radical reforms under his successor, Edward VI. Although Edward's mother, Jane Seymour, had been conservative like his father, the reformer faction was able to exercise control over Henry VIII in his last months, and his maternal uncles, Edward's maternal uncles, Edward Seymour, first Earl of Hertford, and Thomas Seymour, first Baron Seymour of Sudley. The brothers Seymour had allied themselves with the reformers to be the Lord protectors during Edward's regency and left Edward's education to be managed by Thomas Cranmer who, again, was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Edward became very close to Cranmer and also became a very intense sort of Protestant as a result. In 1549, Cranmer published the first edition of the Book of Common Prayer, which is the official liturgical book of the Church of England. The doctrines of justification by faith alone and predestination were central to Cranmer's theology and therefore became central to Anglican theology. The Book of Common Prayer also rejected the Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation, the sacrament of penance, and the Catholic belief in purgatory. Cranmer was also able to get more church services conducted in English during Edward's reign. But Edward only reigned for six years and died in February 1553 at the age of 15. After Edward came his eldest sister, Mary. So all that, all these people died just so Mary could take the throne anyway. But yeah, Mary was known to history, is known to history rather, as Bloody Mary for her suppression of Protestants during her reign. It's a bit of a misnomer though to call her Bloody Mary because she actually had 280 religious dissenters burned at the stake for not reconverting back to Catholicism. So maybe it should be Burning Mary. During Mary's reign, many Protestants left England for Germany and the Low Countries, which is like present day Belgium and the Netherlands. And these people were called the Marian Exiles. And with them gone, Mary and her Privy Council tried to make England Catholic again. In Queen Mary's first parliament, she declared her parents' marriage valid 
delegitimize her sister Elizabeth, which was a common theme in Elizabeth's life. It was probably like the third time by the time she was 16 that that had happened. And she abolished Edward's religious laws. She confiscated the Book of Common Prayer, made English liturgy illegal, and church doctrine was restored to the form that had taken prior to Henry VIII's excommunication. Funny story about that excommunication. When he received the word that he had been excommunicated, Henry went to Catherine of Aragon's house to ask her to pray for his soul, which she did. Then he apologized for everything he put her through and told her that if she had just joined a convent like he asked her to, his soul would now be in mortal mortal peril. And for a little while, according to Catherine's diaries, she believed him and she blamed herself for being stubborn. But eventually she got over that and came to the conclusion that she had to follow her own conscience. That's a smart woman, Catherine it was. Never underestimate a man's ability to blame you for his own mistakes. Word to Rihanna. Despite everyone's uneasiness with the match, Queen Mary married King Philip II of Spain in 1554. The marriage made her even more unpopular than the burnings had already done by conservatives and reformers. The conservatives didn't want their queen being managed by a Spanish king, and they were worried that Mary would let Philip turn England into Spain's vassal. The reformers held the same sentiments as the conservatives about Mary marrying a Spanish king, but they also hated how he encouraged her to persecute Protestants. Philip persuaded Mary to persuade Parliament to repeal Henry's religious laws, returning the English church to Roman jurisdiction, which meant returning all the lands that were confiscated from the church. And this rankled even the conservatives, who hadn't let a difference in doctrine keep them from acquiring some of those valuable lands during Henry's reign. Eager to have England back in the fold, Pope Julius III conceded on the confiscated monastery lands, and by the end of 1554, the deal was done and the heresy acts were reinstalled. Honestly, what is the point? Like, if you don't get the lands and the money and the tax cuts and all that stuff from England being Catholic, then, I mean, like, I guess being Pope, like, he cared about their souls or something. But I would have been like, nah, y'all stay Protestant unless I'm gonna get my money. Under the heresy acts, Numerous Protestants were executed in what's now called the Marian persecutions. About 800 rich Protestants fled into exile while the rest were rounded up and imprisoned. The first executions occurred over five days in February 1555, but Cranmer, the imprisoned archbishop, was forced to watch his appointed bishops Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer be burned at the stake. Cranmer then recanted and repudiated Protestant theology because he was scared as shit and rejoined the Catholic faith. Now, under the heresy laws, anyone who recanted was supposed to be granted a reprieve from execution. But Mary held Cranmer responsible for her parents' divorce, her delegitimization, and everything else that had gone wrong in her life. And so she refused to reprieve Cranmer and he was burned at the stake on 21 March 1556. Which kind of makes sense because he was brought in by Thomas Cromwell as a lawyer to like create a legal basis for the uh, dissolution of the marriage because they were going for a retroactive, what would you call that? Retroactive, what's it called when it's not a divorce? Whatever it's called. And of course they couldn't go for that because like you had a freaking child together. So Thomas Cramer was brought in to like craft a legal argument based on scripture and 
Catholic doctrine for why Henry VIII should be able to get his divorce. And it was actually a sound doctrine. And the Pope at the time, Clement VII, acknowledged that it was a pretty sound doctrine. But Clement VII at the time was being held captive by Catherine of Aragon's great nephew, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. So even though he had to admit, like, damn, Cramer, you make a good point there, but I literally have her nephew's sword at my throat. So no, I'm not going to be granting you a divorce. So Mary had a point, like, the guy ruined her life, I guess. And so he must burn. As Cramer was being burned, he loudly and dramatically recanted his recantation, <laughs> okay? And when Mary heard, she shrugged and said, well, I suppose I was right in the end. I know that's right. The burnings were so unpopular that even Alfonso de Castro, one of Philip's ecclesiastical staff, condemned them and suggested to Mary that maybe you should chill. And another advisor, Simon Renard, warned Mary that she was making the Protestants look sympathetic to their neighbors and that there might be a revolt. Mary was like, okay, then run up then. And she continued with the persecutions until the end of her reign, although she did start granting more reprieves and not ripping mothers away from their babies and shit like that. The English blamed Philip for the persecutions and it exacerbated anti-Spanish and anti-Catholic sentiment in the English people for many years afterwards, which Charles I would find out to his doom. Queen Mary I's reign lasted five years and she died on 17 November 1558. Her sister Elizabeth became queen the same day, but out of respect for her sister's passing, her coronation was postponed until 15 January 1559. Elizabeth, like her brother, had been raised Protestant, but Elizabeth wasn't as zealous as her brother or her sister. Her main concern was bringing the English people back together and establishing uniformity. Elizabeth was a mix of her siblings in that she liked a little of the drama and ceremony of the Catholic liturgy and didn't mind the Latin since she spoke seven languages, but she absolutely resisted the idea of the monarch in England being under the thumb of the Pope in Rome. Ultimately, the Catholics believed that she was never legitimate and the Protestants, even if they didn't like her or her mother, which many didn't, the Protestants were willing to keep their opinions to themselves so long as she didn't burn them alive. So clearly, Elizabeth chose Protestantism. She just did hers with a crucifix and a Latin mass. Elizabeth and her advisors were concerned about a Catholic League forming a crusade against England and Scotland and Ireland, both allies of Catholic kingdoms, were points of entry that kept Elizabeth up at night. Therefore, she and her council tried to placate both sides and the Parliament of 1559 put forth a church based on the reforms of Edward VI, but with many Catholic elements such as vestments. The heresy laws were repealed again, so the Catholics didn't fear an Elizabethan persecution, and the Act of Uniformity was passed in 1558 that made church attendance mandatory, with an adapted Book of Common Prayer to be used in the service. The penalties for recusancy, which is the failure to conform, were financial rather than corporal, and most people chose to conform rather than pay more tax. This did irritate the Puritans, though, who believed that churches were communities of believers and should not be tied to secular government or have a supreme head. And these beliefs later informed the Constitution of the United States of America. Elizabeth never married and named her cousin King James VI of Scotland. Sorry, yeah, he was the VI of Scotland as her heir in the Treaty of Berwick in 1586. She died on 24 March 1603 and James became King James I and VI of England and Scotland 
ushering in the Jacobean era of English Protestantism, which lasted through the reigns of James and his son, Charles, and ended with Charles I's death by execution. Now, unless noted otherwise, all these kings and queens are rulers of Scotland and England from James I onward. This was formalized through the Acts of Union of 1707, which established the United Kingdom of Great Britain, which consisted of England, Wales, Scotland, and Ireland. James wanted to rule England and Scotland in a personal union way back in 1603, but neither the Scottish nor the English parliaments tolerated that. And his early reign in England was a little chaotic, culminating in the now famous gunpowder plot on 5 November 1605. I'm not really sure how Guy Fawkes and his mask became an anti-establishment symbol, but Guy Fawkes was just a Catholic in England who was part of a failed assassination attempt against King James I and was led by Robert Catesby. They intended to blow up Parliament as a prelude to a popular revolt in the Midlands and then install James' daughter Elizabeth, who was nine years old at the time, on the throne. The problem with that was Elizabeth was being raised as a Protestant as well, so I'm not sure how they thought that would work. Maybe they thought they would, like, I don't know, like, change her or something. Fun fact, the awe of the actor Kit Harington is directly descended from Robert Catesby on his mother's side, and he's directly descended from King James I on his father's side. I'm not going to recommend his HBO show about the gunpowder plot, though. I love me some Kit Harrington, but a girl has to have a code, and it was just not good. James was raised as a Protestant in Scotland after his silly mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, was driven into exile when she attempted to fight his uncle for control of his regency. And the only reason why there was a regency is because she'd been forced to abdicate the throne in the first place in favor of James, and he was like two. So, girl, they clearly did not like you. Under James' reign, Protestantism in both Scotland and England became more entrenched, but it was sometimes in opposition to the king. In Scotland, the Presbyterians, led by John Knox, were heavily influenced by Calvinism, Knox having become a friend of John Calvin while he was in exile in Geneva. He had helped the English Protestants under Edward VI revise the Book of Common Prayer, but he insisted that the Church of Scotland, which they call a Kirk, be independent from the Church of England, which was decidedly less influenced by Calvin and more so by Luther since Thomas Cranmer had spent his exile in Germany. The Church of England retained more vestiges of Catholicism, and it still has Catholic and evangelical wings to it, and it's governed by bishops, while the Church of Scotland is Presbyterian in structure and has no bishops. This is because the Church of England, like I said, was a top-down reformation influenced by the conservative natures of both Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, whereas the Church of Scotland was a grassroots movement that began with the preachers and then was embraced by the nobility because they wanted the land. In England, in addition to dealing with recusant Catholics trying to undermine his reign, James had to deal with the Puritans who were Protestant zealots that felt like mainstream Anglicanism wasn't going far enough. They were called Puritans. And, yeah, I just said that. And they resented the King James Bible, which was published in 1611, which replaced the more Calvinist Bishop's Bible that had been translated in Geneva and brought back with the Marian exiles. Elizabeth had, why didn't they just go to Scotland then? I mean, like, clearly you're down with Presbyterianism more. Anyway, though, I guess, I don't know, whatever. Elizabeth had given James the advice to make the two realms as uniform as possible to rule them effectively. But why would you have listened to her? She didn't rule two uh, two realms. And you know how Scottish people are. You should have just let them be. 
So after taking this English throne, James attempted to bring the Scottish Kirk so near as can be to the English church and reestablish episcopacy in the Scottish church. Episcopacy is the office of a bishop and the concomitant system of church government based on the three offices of the ministry, which are bishops, priests, and deacons. The Presbyterians were not having that because it came from Catholicism, you know. James had promised to return to Edinburgh every three years after his accession to the English throne, but he only returned once in 1617, during which time he and his bishops forced the five articles of Perth through the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, a move that eventually led to the 1639 and 1640 bishops' wars in Scotland, Ireland, and England, and the pilgrims, or Puritans, leaving England first for Holland and then for Virginia. James I died on 27 March 1625 and his eldest surviving son Charles became king on the same day in England, Scotland, and Ireland. King James I of England, Scotland, and Ireland is the only king of England to ever be executed by order of parliament. His reign marked the end of Jacobean era uh, of the end of Jacobean Protestantism and the beginning of the interregnum slash last Catholic king era. Charles I gets a lot of flack for how he tried to rule, but when you start to peel back the layers of his reign, almost everything that happened to him was the blowback to his father's policies carrying over into his reign, as well as his father's advice. It was James who was a proponent of the divine right of kings, and in 1597 to 1598, he wrote The True Law of Free Monarchies and Basilicon Doron, royal gift, in which he argues a theological basis for monarchy. In the true law, he lays out the divine right of kings, explaining that kings are higher beings than other men, though the highest bench is the slipperiest to sit upon. It's an argument for absolute monarchy and Caesaro papism, where a king could propose new laws by his own royal prerogative, but with an abundance of caution, paying heed to God and tradition, or else God would stir up such scourges as pleases him for punishment of wicked kings. Basilicon Doron, in particular, was written as a practical guide of instruction for James' eldest son and then heir, Henry Frederick, who everybody loved. In it, James advises Henry not to hold too many parliaments, which he considers to be merely the king's head court, and says that kings own their realms as feudal fiefs because kings arose before any estates or ranks of men before any parliaments were holding or laws made and by them was the land distributed which at first was wholly theirs and so it follows of necessity that kings were the authors and makers of the law and not the laws makers of the kings now this is partly true of england at least when william the conqueror defeated harold godwinson at the battle of hastings in 1066 he ended the Anglo-Saxon tradition of the Wittengamot, which is where J.K. Rowling got the whole idea of the wizard's Wittengamot, by the way. And it was an assembly of the ruling class earls whose primary function was to advise the high king and whose membership was composed of the most important noblemen in England, both ecclesiastic and secular. The Anglo-Saxon society was feudal, and it relied on reciprocal arrangements made between the king and all those in the lower lower in the societal order. Earls and thanes had men swear fealty to them, and then those earls and thanes swore fealty to the king, but the land belonged to the earl or the thane. When William came running in from Normandy, he ended that arrangement, and the king of England was understood to own all the land of England, 
and dole it out for the nobility to manage, provided they maintain loyalty to him. Thus, titles in England are still held by the monarchy and bestowed upon aristocrats, unlike in continental Europe, where the titles have outlived the monarchies. After Henry Frederick died and Charles became the Prince of Wales, he would have no doubt received a copy of this Basilicon Duran and used it as a guidebook for how he should reign and why he should reign in an absolute fashion. When Charles took the throne in 1625, he almost immediately clashed with the English Parliament, and by 1627, he had prorogued or suspended Parliament over various issues with taxation to fund his naval follows, just like his dad's stupid book told him to. Another issue Charles inherited was the war with Spain and his choice of bride, namely the Catholic Henrietta Maria of France. James had been pushing for a marriage first between Henry Frederick and Infanta Anna Maria of Spain, and then Charles and Anna, uh, Maria Anna, sorry, Maria Anna of Spain, when Henry died. Maria Anna hated English people because her dad was Philip II, and she he, he was the one who built the Armada, and then it sank, and he blamed the English for the weather, and she just, she just hated the English. I don't know why they thought Maria Anna would ever marry an Englishman, but they thought they really thought. James wanted peace between Spain and England, and he and his ministers figured peace could be maintained just as effectively by keeping the negotiations alive as they could by finalizing them and actually assenting to the marriage, which is why James protracted the negotiations for almost a decade. Back then, the ability to secure a high value, hate that I'm using that term, but high value a bride for your heir was like, it was like a symbol of your kingdom's greatness or authority or whatever. Like anybody could pluck a Margravine or a princess from one of the many duchies and kingdoms that, you know, dotted the German landscape. But being able to get the Infanta, which is the crown princess of Spain or you know, the crown princess of uh, fucking France or something, that was a big haul because these are more concentrated, more powerful kingdoms. And you want to be able to say that you married your kids off to like important people, not just like anybody whose teeny tiny castle sits on like 70 acres or whatever. But yeah, this whole marriage thing that James was doing engendered a deep distrust amongst the Protestants of England, which was further deepened when Charles married Henrietta Maria of France, who was also Catholic. This match was unpopular enough before the Thirty Years' War, but it was even less popular after James' Protestant son-in-law and Charles's brother-in-law, Frederick V, Elector Palatine, was deposed as King of Bohemia by the Catholic Emperor Ferdinand II in 1620, and Spanish troops simultaneously invaded Frederick's Rhineland home territory. James called a parliament in 1621 to raise funds to help Frederick and the Protestant-led House of Commons decided to grant an adequate subsidies to finance serious military operations to aid Frederick, but also possibly remembering the profits gained under Elizabeth when she discreetly allowed piracy of Spanish gold and silver ships returning from the New World, they did assent to a war against Spain, but like an undeclared kind of war the way that Elizabeth did it. The Commons, led by Sir Edward Coke, 
also demanded that Charles marry a Protestant and for James to enforce the anti-Catholic laws in England. James told them that the choice of his son's bride was a royal prerogative that they had no right to interfere in. And then, urged on by the Duke of Buckingham and the Spanish ambassador, James I dissolved Parliament in December 1621. Charles and the Duke of Buckingham had secretly traveled to Spain to convince the Infanta of the marriage in 1623, and the Infanta made it clear that she could not stand Charles and would never marry him. Disillusioned, (laughs) Charles and Buckingham returned to England and publicly denounced the Infanta and the marriage treaty, which would have included the repeal of anti-Catholic legislation by Parliament. The people of England and the House of Commons cheered on their Prince of Wales, But the commons got quiet real quick when Charles then suggested a French match and money for a war with Spain. To raise the necessary finances, they asked King James to call another parliament, which met in February 1624. Control of policy shifted there from James to Charles and Buckingham, and they pressured the king to declare war, which he was not trying to do like peace was his thing. The parliament of 1624 was ambiguous. James still refused to declare or fund a war, but Charles believed that the commons had committed to finance a war with Spain, which was his own fault because even his dad didn't sign off on it. Then Charles married Henrietta Maria of France on 1 May 1625 by proxy in France, which many members of the commons were opposed to, fearing that Charles would lift restrictions on Catholic recusants and undermine the official establishment of the Reformed Church of England. Charles had assured them that he would not do this, but in his marriage treaty with the King of France, Henrietta Maria's brother, Louis XIII of France, he did just that and promised to send seven English naval ships to France to suppress the Huguenots of La Rochelle. When Charles was crowned on 2 February 1626, Henrietta Maria refused to attend because she would not participate in a Protestant ceremony. Charles continued to lie to and antagonize the Protestants in England, supporting anti-Calvinists like Richard Montague, and he antagonized Parliament as well, collecting taxes and duties without parliamentary approval and executing a terribly run naval expedition against Spain. In 1626, the Commons tried to get rid of Charles's old friend Buckingham, but rather than dismiss Buckingham, Charles dismissed Parliament. For whatever reason, he also decided to just turn against the French, and despite Charles' agreement to provide the French with English ships as a condition of marrying Henrietta Maria, in 1627, he launched an attack on the French coast to defend the Huguenots at La Rochelle. This expedition was also led by Buckingham, and it also failed miserably. Buckingham's failure to protect the Huguenots spurred Louis XIII's siege of La Rochelle, which led to a massacre and later mass exodus of Huguenots from France. And it furthered the English parliament and people's detestation of the Duke of Buckingham, who Charles seemed to like more as everyone else liked him less. Charles had inherited his father's money problems, which he had inherited from Elizabeth. And he spent 11 years of his reign avoiding parliament and relying on ancient tax laws to raise funds, which never brought in the income that they needed to and irritated everybody in the three kingdoms. On 23 August, 1628, Buckingham was assassinated and Charles was distraught. Nobody else was though, not even his wife. Buckingham's death ended the war with Spain, but not the issues between Charles and Parliament. Despite everyone's dislike of the idea, Charles continued to push for greater uniformity between the Scottish and English churches. And he preferred Arminian theology over the Puritan. Arminian theology emphasized clerical authority and the individual's 
uh, ability to reject or accept salvation. Opponents of Arminianism view this as heretical and a backdoor to Roman Catholicism. Then Charles decided it wasn't enough to piss off English Parliament, and so he made his first trip back to Scotland in 1633 for his coronation as King of Scotland and insisted that the coronation be conducted using the Anglican Rite. In 1637, the king ordered the use of a new prayer book in Scotland that was almost identical to the English Book of Common Prayer and did so without consulting either the uh, Kirk or the Parliament of Scotland. Many Scots resisted it, and on 23 July, riots erupted in Edinburgh upon the first Sunday of the prayer book's usage, and the public began to mobilize around the reaffirmation of the national covenant whose signatories pledged to uphold the reformed religion of Scotland and reject any innovations that were not authorized by Kirk and Parliament. When the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland met in November of 1638, it condemned the new prayer book, abolished Episcopal church government by bishops, and adopted Presbyterian government by elders and deacons. Charles perceived this as a rebellion against his authority and thus launched the Bishop's War in 1639. The signatories of the 1638 National Covenant in Scotland were called Covenanters, and they resented the bishops imposed on the Church of Scotland as instruments of royal control. The General Assembly of the Church of Scotland expelled the bishops, and the Covenanters quickly took control of Scottish Parliament in 1639, passing a series of acts that amounted to constitutional reform, which was confirmed when the Covenanters won in 1640. In England, Charles I engaged in a long back and forth with the English Parliament called the Long and Short Parliaments, where he attempted to circumvent Parliament to raise funds because he was perennially broke. In Scotland, Charles eventually had to assent to Presbyterianism. And in England, the House of Commons passed laws requiring the king to call Parliament at least once every three years and made it illegal for him to dismiss Parliament without their consent. And in Ireland, the Catholic Gaelic Irish, the Catholic Old Irish, and the Protestant New English were all in revolt by 1641, where Charles's former Lord Deputy of Ireland had raised a Catholic army that would support Charles, even as he was stripping land away from Gaelic Irish and Old English Catholics to give to the New English Protestants, particularly in the plantation of Ulster. The Irish Rebellion of 1641 led to massacres of Catholics by Protestants and vice versa, and the establishment of the Irish Catholic Confederacy that held most of the island for about 11 years. On 3 January 1642, Charles and his queen invited five members of parliament to dine with him and then tried to have them arrested. This plot was foiled and Charles attempted to enter parliament to arrest them personally, which horrified everyone. By mid-1642, Parliament and the King were summoning their forces and preparing for civil war. The pro-Charles faction were called the Royalists, and the pro-Parliament faction were called the Roundheads. I'll spare you the boring details, but the war ended with a parliamentarian victory at the Battle of Worcester on 3 September 1651, and had three outcomes. The trial and execution of Charles I in 1649, the exile of his son Charles II in 1651, and the dissolution of the English monarchy and rule by the Rump Parliament as a republic led by Oliver Cromwell and his new model army. This begins the Commonwealth slash last Catholic king phase of British Protestantism. Oliver Cromwell was distantly related to Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII's former chancellor. Sorry, I had said earlier that he was the former archbishop, but he wasn't. 
who Henry had executed because Thomas Cromwell chose an ugly fourth wife for Henry, Anne of Cleves. So Oliver was not really inclined to be pro-monarchy in any sense. He was an independent Puritan who tolerated most of the Protestant sects of England, with the exception of groups he considered to be heretics like the Quakers, which called them to migrate to North America en masse towards the middle of the 15th century and onward. In Ireland, though, Cromwell was ruthless toward the Catholics as he ended the Irish rebellion and he passed the series of penal laws that discriminated against Catholics in Ireland and stole their land. Cromwell's treatment of the Irish is considered by some to be nearly genocidal and even Winston Churchill called him a dictator because mostly because, you know, Churchill was an aristocratic monarchy loving bootkister. Leon Trotsky, however, called him a class revolutionary, which is why no one takes Trotskyism seriously. On 20 April 1653, Cromwell dismissed the rump parliament by force, created a mock parliament called the Bare Bones Parliament, and then was invited by his new model army leaders to become the Lord Protector of England, Scotland, and Ireland on 16 December 1653. Now, if this sounds like Cromwell basically set himself up as a king, it's because that's basically what he did. Forcefully dismissing parliaments, discriminating against religious groups you don't like, creating councils of sycophants instead of a truly representative parliament, designating your weak son as your heir. All of these things King James I, Charles I, and Oliver Cromwell had in common. That last bit, Oliver Cromwell's uh, idiot son, Richard, that was the straw that broke the Englishman's back. And Charles I's son's uh, yeah, his son, Charles II, was invited by the Rump Parliament to return and govern as king, making all that war and bloodshed of the last 20 years really unnecessary, as it often turns out to be. Charles II was king of Scotland from 1649 until 1651, and king of Scotland, England, ugh, the three kingdoms, from 1660 until his death in 1685. Scotland had proclaimed Charles the King Charles the Second King upon his father's execution in 1649, but Charles the Second Scottish forces Scottish Scottish forces were beaten by Cromwell at the Battle of Worcester, or is it Worcester? Who fucking knows? And Charles fled to France to live with his mother for the next nine years. Charles the Second favored religious toleration, which is code for saying he was a Catholic, but. The parliament who brought him back from exile did not. From 1661 to 1665, English parliament passed a series of acts called the Clarendon Code that marginalized Catholics in all the British Isles. The Corporation Act of 1661 required all municipal officials to take Anglican communion and formally reject the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643. The effect of this act was to exclude nonconformists from public office. Although it was not stricken from law until 1828, the Corporation Act was not largely enforced after 1663. The Act of Uniformity made 1662, uh, yeah, the Act of Uniformity of 1662 made the Book of Common Prayer compulsory. When over 2,000 dissenting clergy refused to comply, they were forced to resign as preachers, and many of them in their congregations migrated to mainland Europe and then North America. The provisions of this act were modified by the Act of Uniformity Amendment Act of 1872. The Conventicle Act of 1664 forbade conventicles, which is a meeting for non-state sanctioned worship, of more than five people who were not members of the same household. 
The purpose of this was to prevent dissenting religious groups from meeting. As you might expect, this act drove more Catholics, Puritans, Quakers, and other dissenting groups, first to mainland uh, Europe and then to North America. The Five Mile Act of 1665 forbade nonconformist ministers from coming within five miles of incorporated towns or their former homes. They were also forbidden to teach in schools. Most of the act's effects were repealed by 1689, but it was not formally abolished until 1812. The Test Act and the Corporation Act combined to keep Catholics and other dissenting Protestant groups out of public service and public life in the three kingdoms. As time went on, many nonconformist Protestants were able to evade the political disabilities imposed by the Test Act by taking communion in the Church of England as required, while otherwise attending nonconformist meetings. High Anglican clergymen and conservative Tories who took power late in Queen Anne's reign later on in the story attempted to close this loophole with the passing of the Occasional Conformity Bill in 1711. However, after Queen Anne died, leaving no heir and the Hanoverian dynasty or Hanoverian dynasty rather took the throne under King George I, the Whigs, who were more tolerant of nonconforming Protestants, repealed the Occasional Conformity Bill. After the Jacobite Rebellion of 1715, which sought to restore James Francis Edward Stuart, a Catholic, to the throne, British Parliament passed the Disarming Act of 1716. James II and VII of England, Ireland, and Scotland was the last Catholic monarch of the British Isles. His his first wife, Anne Hyde, was a commoner and the daughter of Charles I, Lord Chancellor, Edward Hyde. And everyone but Charles considered Anne an unsuitable bride for James. Or was this the second? Yeah, sorry. Charles II, Lord Chancellor. They met in the Netherlands while James and his older brother, Charles II, were in exile and had their first two children out of wedlock. James and Charles had been raised Catholic by their mother, Henrietta Maria, and both Charles and James made an outward show of Protestantism and associated with Protestants in France and once they were back in England. James was influenced by Anne Hyde, however, to secretly convert to Catholicism around 1668 or 1669, although he kept his change of faith a secret for nearly a decade and continued to attend Anglican services services until 1676. Now, aside from a few dust-ups with Parliament over anti-Catholic discrimination laws, Charles II had generally let the English and Scottish parliaments do their thing when it came to religion. As part of the Clarendon Code and the Treaty of Breda in uh, 1667, after the Second Anglo-Dutch War, Charles II had promised James' daughter that promised that James' daughter Mary would marry his nephew William of Orange, a Dutch Protestant stadtholder and prince. The marriage went forward as promised, and Mary, despite her parentage, was an avowed Anglican. Charles had done this to reassure the English Parliament that his brother, who was his heir since he only had illegitimate children, would have Protestant heirs, including James' other daughter, the future Queen Anne. However, in 16, June 1668, two events turned Protestant dissent into a secession crisis. The first was the birth of James' son and presumed heir because of primogeniture, James Francis Edward Stuart by James' second wife, Mary of Modena, a Catholic from the Duchy of Modena. The Protestants feared little Jamie's birth would create a Roman Catholic dynasty and exclude his Anglican daughter and her Dutch Protestant husband, William III of Orange. 
This, coupled with the persecution, prosecution rather, of seven Anglican bishops for a seditious libel, was seen as an assault on the Church of England, although they were acquitted on 30 June 1688. Anti-Catholic riots started all over England and Scotland, and it became clear that only James' removal from power could prevent another disastrous civil war. In February 1689, a special convention parliament held that the king had vacated the English throne and finally settled the question of the divine right of kings by establishing the precedent that the right to rule came from parliament and not God. James and his allies, including several Scottish Highlander clans called the Jacobites, fought against the Protestants in the three kingdoms, losing every step of the way. In Ireland at the Battle of the Boyne in July 1690, James and the Jacobites and other Catholics suffered a massive defeat, and James fled to France with his family. This led Parliament to ask Mary and her husband William to come to England to rule jointly as William and Mary, and the College of William and Mary in the U.S. is named for them. William and Mary, the college, is called the alma mater of the nation because it is the alma mater of U.S. Presidents Thomas Jefferson, James Monroe, and John Tyler, as well as the alma mater of the first president of the Continental Congress, Peyton Randolph of Virginia, the first U.S. Attorney General, Edmund Randolph of Virginia, they were brothers, the fourth U.S. Supreme Court Justice, John Marshall of Virginia, Speaker of the House of Representatives, Henry Clay of Kentucky, 16 members of the Continental Congress, and four signers of the Declaration of Independence, all from Virginia. The ascension of William and Mary, which is called the Glorious Revolution, ushered in the fourth and final phase of English Protestantism, which I couldn't come up with a name for, so let's just call it the Glorious Revolution Era. The Catholics and dissenters had all been driven into exile in mainland Europe or North America, which I will discuss next episode. And the Act of Settlement of 1701 limited the line of secession to the British throne to Protestants only. Since Mary Stuart and her younger sister Anne, the only Protestant stewards in that line that had started with James I, they both failed to produce heirs. The Act of Settlement excluded their little brother, James Francis Edward Stuart, and his brother, oh, sorry, his son, Charles Edward Stewart, and their Catholic heirs from then on. Charles Edward Stewart was called the Young Pretender, and his father was called the Old Pretender, and several descendants since then have made claims to the British throne. The current would-be king in the Jacobite secession is Franz, Duke of Bavaria, head of the House of Wittelsbach, who has said that his claim to the British throne is purely hypothetical and basically not worth talking about because he's almost 100 years old at this point. His heir, Prince Max, Duke in Bavaria, is also a Roman Catholic who has no interest in the British throne because he's also old as fuck. And his daughter, Sophie, is the hereditary princess of Liechtenstein by marriage and also has no interest in it because she's the hereditary princess of Liechtenstein. Queen Anne, having no heirs and her brother's descendants now being excluded from the line of secession by law, had to shake the family tree to find a Protestant and settled on the line of Sophia of Hanover, granddaughter of James I and daughter of Elizabeth of Bohemia and Frederick V of the Palatinate. Her son George I became the first Hanoverian king of Hanoverian, sorry, king of Great Britain. And all was well in the United Kingdom, unless you count everything that happened in Ireland since the reign of Elizabeth I. And then, yeah, not so much. Chapter 3. The Thirty Years' War. The Thirty Years' War was fought 
1618 to 1648 and was fought primarily in Germany and Central Europe, although it involved every European country in some form or fashion at some point. Until recently, the Thirty Years' War was considered a religious conflict, but the scholarship of historian C.V. Wedgwood changed that view to it being more about a power struggle between the Habsburgs of Spain, Austria, and the Low Countries, and the Bourbons of France. Religion does play a huge part in it, though, begging Miss Wedgwood pardon, so I'll focus on that aspect of the conflict. The first phase of the war lasted from 1618 to 1635 and was fought between Ferdinand II, Holy Roman Emperor, who was also King of Bohemia and King of Hungary and Croatia, and his German Protestant opponents. The Lutheran Protestant Imperial States had formed the Schmalkaldic League on 27 February 1531 by Philip I, Langrave of Hesse, and John Frederick I, Elector of Saxony. They were two of the most powerful rulers within the Holy Roman Empire. The League promised to defend one another in the event one of them was attacked by Emperor Charles V, and their enormous clout forced Charles' younger brother, Ferdinand, who ruled the Habsburg lands in Austria, to grant a religious peace on 23 July 1532 at Nuremberg. In December of 1535, the League opened up its membership to anyone who would agree to the Augsburg Confession, which was a confession to the Lutheran faith, and the duchies of Anhalt, Wittenberg, sorry, Württemberg and Pomerania joined, as well as the free imperial cities of Augsburg, Frankfurt on Main, and Kempton. In 1538, the Schmalkaldic League allied with the now Lutheran kingdom of Denmark, whose reformation was in part caused by the breakup of the Kalmar Union. And in 1545, the League allied itself with the electoral palatinate under the control of Frederick III, Elector Palatine. In 1544, Denmark and the Holy Roman Empire signed the Treaty of Spire, which stated that during the reign of Christian III, Denmark would maintain a peaceful foreign policy towards the Holy Roman Empire. The League also got limited support from the Duchy of Brandenburg under Joachim II, Hector, but... During the Schmalkaldic War, he flipped on them and sent cavalry to support the Holy Roman Emperor instead. The Schmalkaldic League existed peacefully for 15 years during the reign of Charles V because he spent most of his time fighting the French and the Ottomans. Francis I of France, who vigorously persecuted Protestants at home, even supported the Protestant princes of the Schmalkaldic League, sending them money for arms in an attempt to make nice with everybody who was against Charles V. He even established an alliance with Suleiman the Magnificent in 1536, which shocked everybody in Europe, Catholic and Protestant, because Suleiman and the Ottomans were Muslim, and no matter how bad it gets, you don't take sides against the Catholic family. After wrapping up his wars with France and the Ottomans, Charles now had the time and resources to suppress the Protestants and the Holy Roman Emperor. Well, he wrapped up the war against France, but he got wrapped up by Suleiman. But yeah, Charles had the time and resources to suppress the Protestants in the Holy Roman Empire, which had grown to encompass roughly half of Germany by 1546. He not only made an alliance with Pope Paul III to re-Catholicize any lands he conquered, but he also made alliances with Lutheran princes like Duke Maurice of Saxony, the Albertine cousin of Saxon elector John Frederick I. So it was kind of like, ooh, let me save that for my next 
series. Never mind. Keep moving right along. The Schmacaldic leaders gathered at Ixterhausen. Yeah. Ixterhausen. Everything in German just looks like you're pronouncing it wrong, even when you're not. On 4 uh, 4 July 1546, where they decided to pursue a preventative war due to Charles V's greater strength. This caused consternation within the League because Martin Luther, who had died in February of that year, didn't agree with the League making war with the Emperor. Do you want to defend Lutheranism or what, dude? From 1546 to 1547, the Schmacaldic War was joined over the territories of Ernestine Saxony, Saxony and Albertine Saxony. Charles won this war at the Battle of Mühlberg in 1547, and the residents of 30 different cities in Germany were, in theory, supposed to return to Catholicism, but this didn't happen, and many cities continued to resist him. In the 1548 Augsburg Interim, which was an imperial decree ordered by Charles at the 1548 Diet of Augsburg, all Protestants were to readopt traditional Catholic beliefs and practices, including the seven sacraments. However, it allowed Protestant clergymen the right to marry and for the laity to receive communion in both kinds, bread and wine, similar to the concessions made in Bohemia at the end of the Hussite Wars. Now, if everybody in the Holy Roman Empire had to become Catholic again, how the hell could the Protestant clergymen still exist, much less marry? That was never going to work, clearly. Pope Paul III advised all bishops to abide by the concessions made to the Protestants who technically weren't supposed to exist, but the edict sparked another revolt by the Protestant princes in 1552, known as the Second Schmacaldic War. This time, the Protestant princes were backed by Elector Maurice of Saxony and backed by King Henry II of France. Charles V had to cancel the interim of Augsburg and agree to the 1552 Peace of Passau, which released John Frederick I of Saxony and Philip I of Hesse from confinement. Three years later, the 1555 Peace of Augsburg officially acknowledged the Protestant religion. And the year after that, an exhausted Charles V voluntarily abdicated as King of Bohemia, Austria, Croatia, and Hungary in favor of his brother, Ferdinand I. So he still controlled the, the, he was still Carlos I of Spain and he had all his lands that he got in, he was still the king of uh, or the Duke or what a Burgundy. And so he still had the Spanish Netherlands. He still had half of Italy, all of Spain. He just gave up Germany. The Peace of Augsburg tried to prevent future conflict by fixing existing boundaries under the principle of Cuius Regio, Eo, yeah, Cuius Regio, Uios Religio, which means whose realm, their religion. Each of the 224 states of the Holy Roman Empire from then on were either Lutheran or Catholic based on the religion of their ruler. Other provisions protected religious minorities in cities like Donauwörth and confirmed Lutheran, o- owner- Lutheran ownership of property taken from Catholics since the Peace of Passau. Religious ideals don't tend to respect boundaries, however, and Lutheranism continued to spread past its 1555 boundaries, which led to disputes between Protestant princes and Catholic clergy over what else? Taxes. It's like I keep saying, the whole point of Christianity is tax evasion. From the day Jesus first spoke to Matthew in Capernaum till the peace of Passover, it's always about tax evasion. 
The Protestant princes wanted the Catholic churches in their lands to pay their taxes like everybody else had to, and the Catholics called that persecution. Another wrinkle in the fabric of Christendom was the growth of Calvinism, which hadn't been included in the Peace of Augsburg that recognized the rights of Lutheran Protestants. Now, a person like me would have just said, well, you know what? It says Protestants. So just, I guess that includes everybody and just left it at that. But religious wars are rarely, if ever, actually about religion. So that's not what happened. The Lutheran imperial state of Saxony, the kingdom of Denmark, Norway, and Sweden were competing with the Calvinist imperial state of Brandenburg for dominance over the Baltic Sea trade. That's the real reason for this war. Adding to the mess was the fragmented and difficult to govern nature of the Holy Roman Empire, which consisted of nearly 1,800 separate entities distributed across Germany, the Low Countries, Northern Italy, and areas like Alsace and Franche Comte, which are now part of France. Since 1440, the Holy Roman Emperor had been a Habsburg and was the largest single landholder within the empire with their lands, including the Archduchy of Austria, the Kingdom of Bohemia, and the Kingdom of Hungary. In 1556, the ascension of Charles II of Spain into Charles the I'm sorry, Charles I of Spain and to Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire made Habsburg Spain into a separate entity, but they also had interests in imperial states such as the Duchy of Milan and interests in Bohemia and Hungary. The Habsburg Spanish Empire of Charles V and Philip II was a global superpower whose possessions included the Spanish Netherlands, much of Italy, the Philippines, and most of the Americas. Habsburg Austria was a land-based power focused on maintaining control in Germany and securing their eastern border against the Ottomans. Ambitious imperial states like the Lutheran Saxony and Catholic Bavaria saw the fragmentation of the Holy Roman Empire as an opportunity to become autonomous, and France wanted to prevent the Habsburgs from encircling them, already dealing with imperial borders, uh, I'm sorry, imperial territories on its borders in Flanders, Franche Comte, and the Pyrenees. There were also outside powers that held imperial territories, like the Dutch Prince of Orange, who was also hereditary ruler of Nassau-Dillenburg, and King Christian IV of Denmark, who was also the Duke of Holstein. Long story short, the Holy Roman Empire was a mess of semi-autonomous principalities and an elected emperor, which seems contradictory because how do you elect a monarch? The issues were compounded when you factored in that almost all of these imperial states had separate alliances with each other and with foreign powers. And some of the rulers of these foreign powers were also rulers within the Holy Roman Empire because of their great grandmother or whatever. Religion was the only thing that kept the Holy Roman Empire unified. And after the Peace of Augsburg, they didn't even have that, which set the stage for the Thirty Years' War. When Ferdinand took the reins from his brother in 1556, the Protestants in the empire were skeptical of his commitment to leaving them alone. He was educated by the Jesuits, who were pretty zealous in their commitment to the Counter-Reformation, which is the whole reason why they'd been formed in the first place. He swore to uphold Protestant religious freedoms when he was elected King of Bohemia in May 1617, but he had his fingers uh, crossed behind his back. But and when a series of legal disputes over property were all decided in favor of the Catholic Church, 
Protestant nobles led by Count Thurn of Bohemia met in Prague Castle with Ferdinand's two Catholic representatives, Willem Slavata and Jaroslav Borzila, in May 1618. In an event known as the Second Defenestration of Prague, the two men and their secretary, Philip Fabricius, were thrown out of the castle's windows, which is called defenestration, although all three survived. This was a long overdue retaliation for the first defenestration of Prague, which happened during the Hussite Wars in 1415, where seven members of the Prague City Council were defenestrated by Czech Hussites. After brushing himself off, Count Thurn established a new government that I'm guessing wasn't subservient to Ferdinand, who had thrown him out the window, and the conflict expanded into Silesia and the Habsburg lands of Lower and Upper Austria, which are for the most part present-day Czech Republic. Most of the nobility in Upper and Lower Austria were Protestant and were happy to join Count Thurn and give the middle finger to Ferdinand. The Austrian Habsburgs were never very good with money and couldn't even afford a standing army until 1619, so they were always dependent on their Spanish cousins for money. Once the Spanish got involved, driving out Frederick V of the Palatinate, King James, uh, King James' son-in-law, the Dutch got involved on the side of the Protestants, and then France wanted to join in as well, but Louis XIII was dealing with the Huguenots in La Rochelle and refused to support Protestants anywhere else, even if it meant weakening his Habsburg enemies. The Ottoman Empire and the Duchy of Savoy, or is it Savoy? Doesn't matter. External Habsburg opponents supplied a mercenary army in 1618, but they got their asses kicked, along with Count Thurn. In 1620, on 20 March 1619, Matthias, Holy Roman Emperor, died and the Bohemian Estates rescinded Ferdinand's kingship until uh, in April 1619 and offered it to Frederick instead. Everyone told Frederick not to take it because it undermined the principle of divine right to accept kingship by invitation and with conditions. But Frederick was really thirsty to be king of something again and he accepted it right in front of Ferdinand Salad. He entered Prague a king in October 1619, but by July 1620, the Protestant Union had proclaimed its neutrality, while John George of Saxony, who was Luther's biggest fanboy, agreed to back Ferdinand in return for Lusatia, which is somewhere between Germany and Poland these days, and a promise to safeguard the rights of Lutherans in Bohemia. Before long, the Catholic and imperial forces marched on Prague and Frederick had fled Bohemia. Damn, Bohemia had been like vehemently anti-papacy, anti-empire for the longest. Like Prague was the place to be if you were Protestant or lean Protestant. What the hell did he do? Anyway, the first phase of the Thirty Years' War lasted from 1618 to 1635 and involved about half of the Holy Roman Empire, Denmark, Spain, the Netherlands, and Sweden. And all they got were a bunch of treaties that didn't hold and some t-shirts. In the second phase, which lasted from 1635 until 1648, the French under Cardinal Richelieu initially helped ease the Swedes out of the war, which Swedish King Gustavus Adolphus had joined partially out of a genuine desire to support his Protestant co-religionists, but mostly like King Christian IV of Denmark, he also wanted to maximize his share of the Baltic trade. This did not happen. After helping Gustavus limp to his seat, 
Richelieu, whose main interest was keeping Habsburg Spain in the war and was thus too busy to bother France, uh, hired mercenaries to wage war against Spain in the Rhineland, but misstepped by invading the Spanish Netherlands in 1635. A Franco-Swedish alliance was again joined in March 1636 and actually made some gains against the Spanish and Imperial forces in Germany, forcing Ferdinand to ad- abandon hope of a military victory. In December 1642, Cardinal Richelieu died, and a few months later, so did Louis XIII on 14 May 1643. And their respective successors, Cardinal Mazarin and Louis XIV, who was five years old at the time, continued the same general policy, harrying the Spanish in the Netherlands and foraging alliances in Northern Europe to keep the Habsburgs busy there. By 1643, Emperor Ferdinand I invited Sweden and France to attend peace negotiations in the Westphalian towns of Munster and Osnabrück. But then King Christian IV blockaded the free imperial city of Hamburg and increased toll payments in the Baltic, significantly impacting the Dutch and Swedish economies, economies of his allies, no less. And in December 1643, the Swedes invaded Jutland with the Dutch providing naval support. Mazarin probably threw his tonsure cap in disgust, and Ferdinand probably got on his knees and thanked God. The Swedes, Danes, Imperial forces, and their allies, oh my God, uh, in Bavaria, the French, the Dutch, and the Spanish all continued to shoot at and blow each other up for the next five years with several pointless exchanges of territory until 24 October 1648, when Emperor Ferdinand was finally able to get that peace treaty signed with Sweden and France. In the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, three separate agreements were actually made. The Peace of Munster between Spain and the Dutch Republic, the Treaty of Osnabrück between the Empire and Sweden, and the Treaty of Munster, Treaty of Munster between the Empire and France. The Peace of Munster confirmed Dutch independence and gave them a monopoly over trade conducted through the Scheldt Estuary, confirming the commercial ascendancy of Amsterdam at Antwerp's expense. In the Treaties of Munster and Osnabrück, Ferdinand accepted the supremacy of the Imperial Diet and its legal institutions, reconfirmed the Augsburg Settlement, and recognized Calvinism as a third religion. In addition, Christians residing in imperial states where they were a minority were guaranteed freedom of worship and equality before the law. Brandenburg, Prussia received Farther Pomerania and the bishoprics of Magdeburg, Halberstadt, Common, and Minden. Frederick's son, Charles Louis, regained the lower Palatinate and became the eighth imperial elector, although Bavaria kept the upper Palatinate and its electoral vote. All three treaties formally acknowledged the independence of the Dutch Republic and the Swiss Confederacy, which had effectively been autonomous since 1499 anyway. Sweden received an indemnity of 5 million thalers, the imperial territories of Swedish Pomerania and prince bishoprics of Bremen and Verden, giving them a seat in the imperial diet. Why would you want to see in the imperial diet if you're already the king of somewhere else? Anyway. The Peace of Westphalia, like most European peace treaties, did not actually lead to any peace. Cardinal Mazarin really, 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 really wanted to continue the war against Spain. And so he made sure not to include the Burgundian Circle, which is now part of Belgium and the Netherlands and Luxembourg, in the Treaty of, uh, of Munster, allowing France 
to legally continue fighting the Spanish there in a conflict that didn't end until the 1659 Treaty of the Pyrenees. Sweden ended up having after, uh, Sweden ended up having a war with the Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth. That's so random. And um, yeah, they had a war with the Com- Polish what is it Polish Lithuanian Commonwealth, and that war eventually involved Denmark, Russia, and Brandenburg. Ultimately, only France got what they wanted from the Thirty Years' War. And I guess the Calvinists got Switzerland and recognition in the Holy Roman Empire, but France got the separation of the Spanish and and Austrian Habsburg lands, an expansion of French lands, and the end of Spanish military supremacy in Northern Europe, which honestly hadn't even lasted that long and was actually Dutch naval supremacy. Like most continental European wars, the Thirty Years' War was started over nothing, instigated by the French for reasons that only benefited them and ended with a peace that did not actually lead to peace. It was the last of the major religious wars in Europe, which is unfortunate because once Europeans decided to stop killing each other over differences in religion, they began to look outside of Europe for people to kill, colonize, and enslaved. And well, there went the neighborhood. Chapter four, the counter-reformation. The Catholic Church was a little slow on the uptake when it came to countering the Protestant Reformation. And at several key points, they really could have staunched the wound and maintained spiritual supremacy in Europe. But instead of doing that, they dug in their doctrinal heels and reaffirmed and reaffirmed and reaffirmed how right they were and how wrong everybody else was. In Spain, the Tribunal of the Holy Office of the Inquisition was established in 1478 by the most Catholic monarchs, King Ferdinand II of Aragon and Queen Isabella I of Castile, who were like the most zealous Catholics to ever live. They wanted to maintain Catholic orthodoxy in their kingdoms, which, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of dissent going on in Aragon or Castile, but I guess they saw all the hullabaloo going on in Navarre and said, I don't want that shit south of the Pyrenees, my guy. The Inquisition was originally intended primarily to identify heretics among those who converted from Judaism and Islam to Catholicism, called conversos and moriscos, respectively. The 1492 Alhambra Decree expelled the Jews from newly reconquered Andalusia, which had been held by the Muslims since the 700s. Listen to episode 5.4 about the Islamic invasions to learn all about that. While in the former Al-Andalus, as it was called before the Reconquista, Sephardic Jews had become prosperous and there was a brief golden age under the Umayyads. This golden age didn't last very long after the Umayyads fell to the more uh, zealous uh, Abbasids and Fatimids and all the mother Sids. But by all accounts, it was safer to be a a Jew in Muslim-controlled Spain, North Africa, uh, sorry, yeah, it was safer to be a Jew in Muslim-controlled Spain, North Africa or the Levant than it was to be a Jew anywhere in Christian Europe until about the 17th century when Commonwealth England under Cromwell allowed the Jews to return to England after 700 years and the newly founded Dutch Republic allowed them to return after the Peace of Westphalia. They offered full religious toleration and invited the Jews to settle in cities like Amsterdam and Rotterdam, although they did not extend this toleration to Muslims, a practice that they maintain to this day. Ferdinand and Isabella were not with any of those pleasantries and forced the Jews and Muslims in cities like Cordoba and Toledo to convert or be expelled from the newly united Spanish kingdoms. 
Conversos were allowed to stay, but Moriscos, which were Muslims that converted, were expelled anyway, which kind of makes it pointless to convert. But I guess maybe they were going to kill them if they didn't. I don't know. Conversos who did not fully or genuinely embrace Catholicism, but who continue to practice Judaism in secrecy were referred to as Moranos, which means swine. And when caught, the worst punishments of the Inquisition were waiting for them, resulting in the flight of many conversos to Italy and Spanish America during the reign of Charles V, who genuinely didn't give a fuck what your religion was. Conversos also played a vital role in the 1520-1521 Revolt of the Comuneros, which was a popular uprising in Castile against the rule of Charles V, who was Carlos I in Spain and his administration. Prior to their forced conversions, Jews in Catholic Spain had been excluded from most of the economic activity in the Christian kingdoms. The conversos, however, were now fully privileged citizens and competed in all aspects of the economic sphere. This resulted in a new wave of racial anti-Semitism that was targeted at the conversos and the beginning of the racial caste system that would eventually form the racial hierarchy of colonial Spanish America. Most conversos were only publicly Christian and found ways to keep their Jewish traditions alive by observing many Jewish holidays like Shabbat. Conversos secretly cooked and baked traditional Jewish dishes in honor of the Sabbath starting on Friday sundown, Yom Kippur, and other religious holidays. During festivals like Sukkot and Passover, conversos participated by giving clothing articles and ornaments to Jewish women, attending seders, and baking matzah. They ensured that their household maintained Jewish dietary regulations by only eating kosher birds and other animals and also financially contributed to the growth of the Jewish converso community and the synagogue. The Jewish community and the conversos exchanged books and knowledge and Jews taught conversos how to read Hebrew to ensure constant growth of their Jewish heritage. To take a stance against the church and its principles, some conversos performed professional work even on Sundays. The traditional Jewish Purim was kept by the conversos in the disguise of a Christian holiday that they called the Festival of Santa Esterica. The conversos and moriscos weren't the only group subject to the Inquisition, however. All forms of heritage Christianity, like Protestants and Orthodox and blaspheming Catholics, etc., were prescribed in the reconquested, oh, sorry, yeah, we ugh, reconquered Spanish kingdoms. In 1540, the Society of Jesus was founded by St. Ignatius of Loyola and six companions with the approval of Pope Paul III. Its members are called Jesuits, and their main apostolic focus is evangelization and apostolic ministry. Jesuits work primarily in education, research, and cultural pursuits. St. Ignatius was a Navarrese nobleman from the Pyrenees area of northern Spain, and he discovered his calling for the priesthood while recovering from a wound sustained at the Battle of Pamplona during the Italian War of 1521 to 1526. He and his six friends named their order Society of Jesus because they felt that they were placed together by Christ. Ignatius' vision for the society reflected his military background, and it reads, Whoever desires to serve as a soldier of God beneath the banner of the cross in our society, which we desire to be designated by the name of Jesus and to serve the Lord alone and the church, his spouse, under the Roman pontiff, the vicar of Christ on earth, should, after a solemn vow of perpetual chastity, poverty, and obedience, keep what follows in mind. 
He is a member of a society founded chiefly for this purpose, to strive especially for the defense and propagation of the faith and for the progress of souls in Christian life and doctrine by means of public preaching, lectures, and any other ministration whatsoever of the word of God. And further by means of retreats, the education of children and the unlettered persons in Christianity and spiritual consolation of Christ's faithful through hearing confession and administering the other sacraments. Moreover, he should show himself to be ready to reconcile the estranged, compassionately assist and serve those who are in prisons and hospitals, and indeed to perform any other works of charity according to what will seem expedient for the glory of God and the common good. The society wanted to be on the front lines of the ideological war between the Catholic Church and the Protestant faiths, and Ignatius felt that this meant Catholics needed to be in all aspects of the lives of the laity. In antiquity and early medieval times, Catholic clergy fulfilled many roles in society. They were usually the only ones that were able to read, and they had some medical uh, skills that were essential in every monastery. And monasteries would eventually, you know, set up schools for local children sometimes. As time progressed and the Renaissance Europe became more urbanized, the role of the clergy was reduced somewhat as greater social mobility and the develop of a, development of a small middle class meant that people weren't as reliant on the church. The Society of Jesus, through Ignatius' mission statement, sought to reintegrate Catholic doctrine into the daily lives of Europeans, whether it be through public preaching, lecturing in a Jesuit one school, or proselytization, the Society of Jesus would avail themselves to be of service to the Catholic faith. For example, the zeal of the Jesuits thwarted the expansion of Lutheran Calvinist Protestantism in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and in Southern Germany, two regions that are still predominantly Catholic to this day. In fact, the only Eastern European Pope, Pope John Paul II, was Polish and recalls the Jesuits organizing Jewish versus Catholic soccer games in his whole town of Wadowice, Poland, and later hiding Jewish children all over the city of Krakow. Ignatius and the early Jesuits recognized that the hierarchical church was in dire need of reform, and some of their greatest struggles were against the corruption, venality, and spiritual, spiritual lassitude within the Catholic church. Ignatius was embarrassed by how easily Martin Luther could quote scripture and relate it to his doctrines and insisted on a high level of academic preparation for the clergy in his order, in contrast to the relatively poor education of much of the clergy during his time. The relaxed structure of the Society of Jesus, they didn't have to adhere to the requirements of living and celebration of the liturgy of, uh, liturgy of hours in common. This relaxed structure allowed them to be flexible and meet the diverse needs arising at the time of the Counter-Reformation. The Jesuits were the first religious order to operate colleges and universities as a distinct ministry. And by the time of Ignatius' death in 1556, the Jesuits were already operating a network of 74 colleges on three continents. The Jesuit plan of studies was an important precursor to liberal arts education and incorporated the classical teachings of Renaissance humanism into the scholastic structure of the Catholic thought. In the present day, Jesuit colleges and universities can be found all over the world, and I went to a Jesuit girls' high school. The Jesuits were different from other holy orders in that they were fervent in their mission to reach new souls, whereas other holy orders were more cloistered and tended to avoid non-Catholics. The Jesuit education model is also one of the more competitive, and the society does not turn away students for not being Catholic or for lack of funds. Over the years, 
The Society of Jesus has expanded their mission to 112 nations and are largely responsible for Roman Roman Catholicism's pervasiveness in Latin America in particular. The current Pope, Pope Francis, is an an Argentine from Buenos Aires, and he is the first Jesuit Pope, the first from the Americas, the first from the Southern Hemisphere, and the first Pope from outside of Europe since Gregory III, who was a Syrian in the 8th century. The Council of Trent was held between 1545 and 1563 in the northern Italian city of Trento. It was the ecumenical council that outlined the processes of the counter-reformation. The council first issued condemnations of what it defined to be heresies and also issued key statements and clarifications of the church's doctrine and teachings on doctrinal matters such as scripture, biblical canons, sacred tradition, original sin, justification through faith and works, salvation, the sacraments, the mass, and the veneration of saints. During the deliberations, the council made the Vulgate the official example of biblical canon. The Vulgate is a 4th century Latin translation of the Bible, translated primarily by Jerome of Stridon, who was commissioned by Pope Damasus in 382 to replace the Vetus Latina translation of the Holy Bible. So it was St. Jerome who essentially chose which books of the Bible based on the, yeah, he essentially chose the books of the Bible. The Council of Trent commissioned a standard version of the Vulgate that was completed in the 1590s. In 1565, Pope Pius IV issued the Tridentine Creed after Tridentum, Trent's Latin name which was the most widely used Eucharistic liturgy in the world from 1570 until 1970. The council also attempted to redress some disciplinary issues within the clergy and abolish some of the more notorious abuses regarding the sale of indulgences, the morals of convents, the education levels of the clergy, the non-residents of bishops, and also bishops having multiple benefices, which was fairly common at that point. Although some German bishops asked, no concession whatsoever was made to Protestantism. The church didn't give up on its tried and true methods of deflection, uh, namely sponsoring crusades like they were pep rallies to like cheer up their adherents. In 1570, Pope Pius V arranged for a new Holy League of Catholic states, which was basically Spain and most of Italy, to take on the Ottoman Empire. On 7 October 1571, the Naval Battle of Lepanto was joined, and it was the largest naval battle in Western history since classical antiquity, involving more than 400 warships. It was also the swan song of the galley and the gallius, which were the direct descendants of the ancient Greek trireme. After the Battle of Lepanto, the galleon would replace these vessels, ushering in the age of sail and making Asia and sub-Saharan Africa accessible by sea to Europeans for the first time. And well, you know what that means. The Battle of Lepanto was not just a tactical and strategic victory for Europe. It was also a moral victory. According to the historian Paul K. Davis, more than a military victory, Lepanto was a moral one. For decades, the Ottoman Turks had terrified Europe. And the victories of Suleiman the Magnificent caused Christian Europe serious concern. The defeat at Lepanto further exemplified the rapid deterioration of Ottoman might under Selim II, and Christians rejoiced at this setback for the Ottomans. The mystique of Ottoman power was tarnished significantly by this battle, and Christian Europe was heartened. The Ottoman Empire under Suleiman the Magnificent 
had reached the apex of its territorial expansion by 1633, straddling three continents and controlling the Eastern Mediterranean, Black Sea, Caspian Sea, Red Sea, and Inner Indian Ocean tradeways. The Bane of Venice, which is what the Ottoman Empire was referred to in Italy, was not that diminished by the Battle of Lepanto. And in the 17th century, the Ottomans began a period they called the Era of Transformation that lasted from roughly 1550 to 1700. Earlier historians, using the Battle of Lepanto as an example, had characterized this period as one of stagnation and decline, but new scholarship suggests that the Ottoman Empire was simply moving from being an expansionist patrimonial state to a bureaucratic empire based on an ideology of upholding justice and acting as the protector of Sunni Islam. Other quote-unquote empires, and I'm using this word very loosely here, such as the Frankish empire, never fully became expansionist patrimonial states. And as such, they never had to deal with such a transition once the outer limits of empire were reached. Emperors Augustus, Trajan, Hadrian, and Marcus Aurelius all understood that Rome had to learn to maintain and not always expand. And that's why their reigns are understood to have lengthened the lifespan of the Roman Empire. So the Ottomans might have known what they were doing. Pope Pius V instituted the Feast of Our Lady of Victory after the Battle of Lepanto, and Philip II of Spain used the victory to strengthen his position as the most Catholic king and defender of Christendom against Muslim incursion. The battle did have the psychological effect that Pius was looking for because the Hungarian kings and nobles, who had been nearly annihilated by Suleiman the Magnificent in the Battle of Mohawks in 1526, began to rely on the fervently Catholic Ferdinand I, Holy Roman Emperor, to protect them and Croatia after the Battle of Lepanto. This resulted in the slowing down of the Hungarian Reformation and the split between Eastern Hungarians who remained Catholic and Western Hungarians who remained Lutheran and other Protestant denominations. The Gregorian calendar was introduced in October 1582 by Pope Gregory XIII as a minor modification of the Julian calendar, reducing the average year from 365.25 days to 365.2425 days and adjusting for the drift in the tropical or solar year that the inaccuracy had caused during the intervening centuries. This reform was a adopted initially by the Catholic countries of Europe and their overseas possessions as a means of seeming less anti-science. The church also wanted to bring the date for the celebration of Easter closer to the time of year in which it was celebrated when it was introduced in the early church as a show of being closer in line to the earliest church teachings than the Protestants. The Catholic church had fucked up big time. And in so many countries and in so many ways, but they were able to make a few conciliatory gestures and reforms and remain to this day, the largest Christian denomination in the world with over 2 billion adherents. The religious wars that had ravaged Europe in the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries had created new states, diminished others and restructured alliances along religious lines. These wars did not lead to Europe becoming a bastion of religious toleration, however, and many dissident denominations and faiths sought new worlds to worship freely in. Next episode, I will discuss how these new worlds became dumping grounds for religious rejects, 
and how church and state eventually colonized the world, turning Christianity from a European and slightly Levantine faith to a global religion. Join me next time for more Musings on History.